Well, it's my privilege uh, this morning to introduce Dr. Mark Laberton. Uh, Mark uh, is a, a pastor, author, theologian, leader uh, for uh, churches all around the world. He was a, a pastor, senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church Berkeley for many years, uh, right here in the Bay Area. He is the current president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Many of our staff and pastors, myself included, uh, owe a, a lot to Fuller. I'm happy to say we don't actually owe any more money to Fuller after getting through there, both my wife and I with our graduate degrees, but, but we owe a lot spiritually uh, to, uh, to Fuller in, in the ways that the seminary has, has blessed us and formed us for ministry and has done so for leaders in the church all around the world for 75 years now. And uh, Mark will be stepping down as the president of Fuller uh, by the end of this year, but we're so blessed to have him as a friend of our church uh, to share God's word for us. So will you please, at every campus, everywhere you are, give a huge welcome to Mark Laberton. Thank you. Well, it's a really, really wonderful joy to me to be able to be here. Uh, it was in 1981 that I arrived to be the college pastor at Berkeley and met up with Tom Cooper, who was then the college pastor here at Menlo. And so for at least 41 years, this congregation and its life has mattered to me. And I feel like I've, I've followed the ups and downs and vicissitudes and joys of, of Menlo Church over the years. And I'm just so, so thankful for where you are now. I was part of the throng of people who were watching online last week as Phil preached and as you receive him as your uh, next pastor. I'm really excited about that. I don't know him, but I look forward to getting acquainted. And I'm, I'm just very, very grateful that God has called him for this new chapter, this new time, and this really critical moment in the life of this church and in the life of the, of the broader church as well. I also want to say, just as, a, as the president of Fuller, how grateful we are for Menlo's partnership with Fuller over the years. That was true as I watched it when I was a student at Fuller. I watched Menlo students come to Fuller, and I could see and understand the support of the congregation. That was significant. But now, over all the decades of more direct relationship, and certainly during these years as president, I've been so aware of the significance of, of what Menlo is doing and what it's done over the years and the pastors that have been formed at Fuller and have gone on to serve here. So great joy for all that. And I look forward to the chance to seeing how that partnership continues over the next years. Let me just pray for a moment. Oh God, in your great mercy, you know every face, you know every name, you know precisely where we are in our own life, uh, the, the great weights that we carry, the anxieties that we hold, the longings and yearnings that are in us. You know those pressure points, and we ask that now, by the power of your Spirit, that in these moments as we reflect on your Scripture, that we might have ears to hear and hearing that we might live the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Old Testament, there's really two great paradigms. The first paradigm is the paradigm of the Exodus. You probably know the story of Israel's bondage to Egypt, 400 years of suffering, Moses being called as the leader who will lead them out of that into the promised land. That occupies the major narrative line of the Hebrew scriptures. And it is still then picked up in the New Testament as well. Jesus himself is really seen as a still further extension of bringing God's people into the promised land. Not a promised land only of space and ground and earth, 
but a promised land of relationships renewed in relationship to God and renewed in relationship to each other. That paradigm is, is really, really an important ongoing paradigm. But the second great paradigm of the Old Testament is the paradigm of the exile. This is completely different. Here, God is the one who actually sends Israel into exile as an act of spiritual discipline, having sent generations of prophets to say, look, you claim my name, but you do not display my life. Look, you say you worship me, but it's really yourselves that you're most interested. Look, I've called you to be a people that reflect who I am, but in the end of the story, it feels like it's really just a reflection of who you are. Generation after generation, he sends these prophets. Israel's ears seem to be dull. And as a result, they're sent into exile as a way of a kind of spiritual discipline that says to Israel, now, what is going to happen to you as you live as strangers in a strange land? When the temple is taken away from you, it's desecrated. When the whole system of sacrificial offerings is no longer in place, what happens to you then? What happens to you most powerfully when you no longer occupy the land that I had given to you to be a distinct people who will actually reflect my life? All of that is taken away from Israel. And now the question is, how will they live as faithful exiles? The American narrative is occupied primarily with the Exodus paradigm. The great national narrative, not true for all people, but true for many people, who came from people and places around the world where coming to the United States was like coming to a promised land. And that narrative, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, is a very pervasive cultural narrative as well as a spiritual one. But I want to suggest and ask you this morning to think instead of the exile paradigm. It seems to me that we are more showing the signs of being a church in exile these days than we are a church in the promised land. In exile, we are disoriented. We are displaced. The institutions, structures, and expectations of how we might live our life are, are being recast. The things that we might have in some way or another relied on are being reorganized or undone or are burned down or are in trouble. What happens in a context like that where the church, I would say in America, could arguably be described as a three-alarm or four-alarm fire of the way that the faith is being spoken of and acted on or not acted on, not enacted, but actions simply taken in our own self-interest, our own political interests, our social, our social interests. How do we find our bearing? This is a crisis. It's a major crisis. And it's a crisis not just in the church, but it's a crisis more broadly because we're a reflection in many ways of the wider cultural anxiety. Why is there so much mental illness? For many different reasons. But one of the reasons has to do with the sense of displacement and disorientation, of being unsure where we actually can step, where, we're, where are the safe places, but also where are the places where, where we really live with a sense of freedom and joy and confidence that's not defined simply by circumstances. Those are all the realities that are in culture, that are in the church, and the text that we're looking at this morning in the book of Daniel, I think can help ground us in some really, really important ways, even when it's uncomfortable. The book of Daniel is a story of exile. Daniel and his friends are among the small cohort of those who, having been taken over by Babylon, are now invited to live in Nebuchadnezzar's house. And like every kind of dominating force, 
they took the best and the brightest, they brought them into Nebuchadnezzar's house to assimilate them. So that over time, they would become assimilating leaders to the rest of the people of Israel. They're invited, they are, in one sense, you could say the lucky ones. They got inside the house. They have food to eat. They have work to do. They have education that's provided. They have all kinds of good things that are given to them. But the challenge is that they could so easily lose themselves. They could simply yield to the assimilation that Nebuchadnezzar, the crazy man that's the head of Babylon, is trying to instigate to take over their lives in the deepest and most formative ways. First chapter, they move into Nebuchadnezzar's house. They're given all these gifts. An amazing moment. And they ask themselves implicitly, how will we keep our bearing? They decide that the way to do this is one primary thing. They do cooperate with all kinds of things that Nebuchadnezzar expected. All sorts of assimilation does happen. But in the end of the day, how will they remember who they are? And they decide that what they're going to do is to ask for the permission to observe the dietary law of Israel. So that every time they sat down at Nebuchadnezzar's table, they were saying to themselves, we belong to Yahweh. I dwell in Nebuchadnezzar's house. I eat off of Nebuchadnezzar's table. I'm assimilating to the language and the stories and the narrative and the jobs that I've been being given. But every time I eat, I remember that I belong not to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Babylon, but to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's an amazing portrait. They're given this opportunity. They show that they can still survive and do very well. They flourish. But the question is, in a time of exile, we have to ask our identity. In a time of promised land, we sort of easily think we just assume an identity. But in exile, where every signal is taken away, we have to ask ourselves again, who are we? As Mark said, I'm about to step down as president of Fuller. And that means laying down the privilege and roles that I've had over the last 10 years as serving in this wonderful job in this great institution. But I'm aware that in laying all that down, that there will be a season, even moving back to the familiar Bay Area, which we're rejoicing in being able to do, that suddenly all the pieces are not going to be in the places that they've been for more than a decade. How does that feel when life is undone by a job or economics, by emotional challenges, by relational issues, by dramatic political events, by circumstances that are overwhelming to us? What do we do with all that anxiety, with all that displacement? This first chapter of Daniel is saying, you have to remember who you actually are. And it turns out, I, Mark Laberton, am not the president of anything. It's just a job that I've held, a deeply important job, a job that I've rejoiced in being able to do, but it actually is not my identity. Or is it? That's what this next period will place on the table. How will I remember who I actually am in the middle of that? Lots of familiar signals, coming back to a familiar place, but completely disoriented from the things that I've been doing for the last bunch of years. Just this last week, my assistant showed me a list of 18 standing meetings that I have in one way or another over a month's time. And she said, all of those, except two, will go away when you're no longer the president. I'm stripped of all those things. Now, I have to say, I'm thrilled to be stripped of those things. <laughs> so let that be said. And I'm disoriented by those things no longer being in place. 
How do we remember who we are? The second chapter is a different kind of chapter. In that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the rageaholic that he is, has a terrible, terrible dream. It's a nightmare. And he's so concerned about finding a real understanding of this dream that he turns to his soothsayers, hoping that they might produce something. They have the same old song and dance. He's not interested. This time he says, this is of such consequence, I need real spiritual authority. Daniel and his friends step forward to say, what's, what's happening here? I want you to tell me the dream that I've had and tell me the nightmare. If I tell you the dream, you'll make up some story. I'll only know if it's a credible interpretation if you can tell me both the dream and the nightmare. Well, this is impossible. It's completely beyond Daniel and his friends. They cry out to the God of heaven. Oh my gosh, in the face of all of this, a rageaholic like, like Nebuchadnezzar, who's already threatened everyone's life, don't try to show me any shtick or your head's going to be cut off. This is not a game. They pray. God delivers them, gives them the information, but it's terrifying. They understand why, in fact, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, oh my gosh, we just wish this was not your dream. This is a horrible, horrible dream. And what it's about is the fact that your kingdom is going to come crashing down. Nebuchadnezzar, because they could tell the dream, and even this negative interpretation, says to them, thank you. Thank you for telling me the truth. What was that? That was a moment of credibility. It was not about getting Nebuchadnezzar's pleasure. It was not soothing the, the anxious king. It was about telling the raw truth, even when it cost the dissolution of his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar is able to discern the credibility of that witness. I think one of the great questions that exile raises is the question of whether or not the, the church has credibility. Are we credible? Do we actually both affirm and say and live the truth in such a way that there is a ring of credibility about it? There are voices inside the church and more voices outside the church who currently look at the church and say it is simply uncredible. It has been discredited in its credibility because there's such an inconsistency often between what we profess and what we actually do. So much of what Menlo is trying to do in this season of service is to kind of emphasize again that what we say and what we do needs to be one holistic picture with the integrity and the mark of faith and the reality of its genuine humility and faithfulness and love and generosity. Those are hugely challenging things, not least when you're in a context that may feel hostile. Imagine this. This is how dramatically God wants Israel to learn from being in exile. He'll say through the prophets, I want you to love your city. And in fact, I want you to seek its shalom, the full peace of the city. This is the city of your hostile takeover powers. I want you to seek the welfare of your enemies. For in their welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you hear how unbelievable that is? Now, not just be tolerant of being in exile. Don't just be passively present, but be deeply engaged in loving your city, even, maybe even especially your enemies. For in that reality, there will be credibility to your character and your words and your life. So how are we doing in loving our enemies? Jesus picks up this theme, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount and says, you know, it's not a big deal if you love those who love you or those who are your easy neighbors. I mean, even Gentiles do that. 
question is, do you love your enemies? And letting it sink all the way in that God is an enemy-loving God, which we know because we have been invited into the kingdom of God and we, in our own distinct and particular ways, have been enemies to God. And God has welcomed us into the family. Today we're going to celebrate baptism as a, an extraordinary expression that God has found people and brought them to himself to witness to the truth of the reality and to identify with the death and the resurrection. The death and resurrection is that story, that shorthand for the turning of what deep Christian discipleship's meant to be, to make us new people. Nebuchadnezzar hears this amazing word, and though it is a threat to his very own kingdom, he receives it, the news with gratitude because it was a credible witness. Now in chapter three, the first two chapters come home to roost in a certain way. The nightmare object of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar now builds. This is not uncommon. People have great anxieties and they go, then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna dominate it. That's what I'm gonna do. So what happens in chapter three is that he builds the nightmare of chapter two. And then he says, now everybody has to worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. In other words, I'm still in control. Listen now to the reading of chapter 3, and notice especially the musical rhythm of the text, which captures part of what I think is importantly being said. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, they fell down, all the peoples, nations, and languages, and worshiped the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What's happening in this text is, is so classically an evidence of what dominating power and authority does. It's a seduction of what I think of as the mesmerizing rhythms. The mesmerizing rhythms that simply stand in for so much else, and the moment you hear the rhythm, you know what you're supposed to do. In Pasadena, I've lived in that area for some time. First day that I was there, I was walking along the street and I saw a USC frame around the license plate and the license was conquer. <laughs> you only have to hear the, the first note of the USC fight song to already know exactly what you're supposed to do. 
But if you're not a USC person, you also know exactly what to do. <laughs> Living in that mesmerizing rhythm, feeling the mesmerizing rhythm of the way that USC captures its alumni and its students and its wider culture and the role of USC in LA is enormous. And it's all built on, in a certain way, on the fight song that captures this mesmerizing rhythm of many, many parts that obviously extend far beyond music, but include that cue. Our lives are taken over by mesmerizing rhythms, friends. All of us live in a mesmerizing rhythmic culture. This is exactly what advertisers know. This is exactly what the internet is built on. The capacity for feeds in our social media are all driven by setting in motion certain mesmerizing rhythms of people, events, circumstances, influencers, whatever it may be, that captures our imagination, that causes us to fall in line, to want to pay attention, to be sure that we're aware, to not miss out. All of that is driven by this sense of being caught in a mesmerizing rhythm that can so easily control us. But it controls us to what end? In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it controls us to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's power and not let that power be challenged, but simply yield ourselves to the mesmerizing rhythms, thinking, oh, it's just so benign. All we're doing is bowing down. But what we're doing is surrendering our life. The great danger in this text is really, which is the greater danger? Is it Nebuchadnezzar's power and his threat of the fire, or is it the idolatry? What happens as we move on in chapter 3 is this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, heard that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, should be brought in, for they refused to bow down and worship the golden statue. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the pipe, horn, lyre, trigon, drum, an entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you will shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Megalomania seems like an anemic word to use for what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. I have you. I've set the music. I've established the rhythm. I've told you what you should do. I bear all of the control of the consequences that will ultimately even expunge your life in this burning, fiery furnace. You only need to bow down. That's often the claim. You're only needing to do this. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was a turning point. And the high point of this whole chapter to rescue Daniel from the felt board where he's sort of a two-dimensional character, where he's like a cartoon in, in two dimensions. I want to see Daniel come with his friends into full, dramatic, vivid life, and it happens right here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you silly little man, we have no need to give you a defense in this matter. Our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And out of your hand, O king, let, then let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, and we will not serve the golden statue that you have set up. 
Can we distinguish the greater from the lesser danger? Do we realize the way that mesmerizing rhythms can so easily control our priorities, our values, what we do with our time and our money, what it is that we privilege and what we don't privilege? Do we understand the way that these things take hold of us at a profound level? It begins as children, of course. The controls and power that our parents have is so significant, often very, very constructive, but also has, of course, its own biases. But it sets us on a trajectory, a social trajectory perhaps, or an economic or educational trajectory or some other kind of trajectory in which both the good messages and also the controlling, nagging messages. I can't tell you the number of times when in the opening week at Cal, when I was working in both times I was there, they would have on the lampposts all, all the heads on, in faces of, uh, of these silk-screened images of all the Nobel Prize winners at Cal. So you, like Stanford, great, great, great selective uh, student body. But the message is, but see, really, are you a laureate? Like, okay, so you got into Cal. But like, are you a Nobel winner? And it was almost like a taunt. It was setting another kind of mesmerizing rhythm. You think you've gotten so far. Well, let me tell you, there's further to go. And that's what really matters. And whether it's in education or whether it's in economics or whether it's in social welfare or whether it's in personal relationships or whether it's in opportunities for VC development or whether it's in building a great company or whether it's creating new ideas or doing unbelievable breakthrough science, all of those things can be mesmerizing rhythms that control us and define what we think is us. And everything becomes an effort to try to fit into that expectation and to satisfy the power. I think of how many voices can rattle in my head at different times that people will say, you know, but no, really what you should do is X. Now, I may or may not do that, but often those words linger as a kind of mesmerizing rhythm that says to me, are you paying attention? You should really be doing this. You should really think about your life in this way. Right now in this season of transition, I'm having lots of people tell me what I should be doing. <laughs> lots of people apparently have an agenda for my life. I appreciate the enthusiasm and the encouragement, but I also feel like I could be caught in the mesmerizing rhythm of other people's expectations. Is that who I'm supposed to be? How do I live freely in the world? What's happening here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are displaying the capacity of what I want to call an unhooked life. They're totally aware of Nebuchadnezzar. They can feel the heat of the fire. They're not the slightest bit inured to what it is that's really going on, but... They are unhooked. Nebuchadnezzar, you crazy rageaholic, you silly little man who thinks that our lives are under your control. It just really turns out that's not true. Even if we die, it's not true. Because in fact, we worship a God who is much bigger than the circumstances that you think you can control. Unbelievable freedom. The story of the church in America right now seems as though it is this church hooked in countless ways that have sometimes little or nothing to do with the character of the God that we say we worship. Hooked on power, hooked on influence, hooked on the ability to put ourselves in roles of significance. This church is filled with people like that. You are among all of those people who are like that who through privilege and education and opportunity has given you opportunity to be able to be in significant places and do significant work to which we want to say, amen, do that. And in the middle of all that, 
Are you actually unhooked from it as well? Do you think you are your job? Do you think you are your success? Do you think you are your asset base? Do you think that you are a person who has significance only because of other people's approval? Of finally getting the amen from somebody whose opinion matters to you. There was a guy in our church in Berkeley who I highly esteemed, an amazing, wonderful man. Some things happened in the church. A decision was made by our session, which he disagreed with, and he invited me one day out to lunch, and he said, you know, I, I, I'd like you to have this time together. And I just knew in my spirit this was not going to be a happy meal lunch. Uh, this was going to be another kind of lunch. And sure enough, out, out poured in a very quiet but very piercing way exactly the sort of critique that you would not want to hear. I said, well, then I would think you would think I should leave the church if that's the case. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I think it's really good for you to be here. Wonderfully passive aggressive. <laughs> so the next Sunday, I'm looking out, and he sat in the same place every Sunday, of course, as many of you probably are doing as well. I saw him, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. Now, as it turned out, I could see how people were coming to the, to the forward to lead in the service. And every time someone was up speaking, he was simply looking at them in, in a, a, the way you are and in the way that most people do. But whenever I got up to the pulpit to speak, he always turned his whole body like this. So I'm over here, and he's looking this way. And at first I thought, oh, Mark, you're being paranoid. This is silly. I mean, surely, this is a man in his early 70s who's extremely esteemed in everything that he's ever done. Surely he's not doing this. I mean, this is like a crazy thing. But it was like this. And over time, it was really clear. It was exactly like this. So how long did this go on? Despite every effort to try to seek reconciliation, to try to do whatever it is that we, we could do to try to heal this relationship. Elders were, and I were involved in this. No willingness to change anything. And how long did it last? It lasted for seven years. So every time I was here in the pulpit context, he would turn away like this. It became a spiritual discipline. It became a gift to me because I wanted his opinion. I wanted his respect. I wanted his support. It's all true. And I had to decide, can I be in his presence in the context of worship and be unhooked? Can I be right there serving the whole community, not trying to please him with every word? And he had used some of my favorite words against me so that every time I spoke, I felt like it was sort of acid on my tongue for a while. How do I learn to be free in that context? Do you have anybody like that in your life? For me, it was actually a profoundly freeing experience to be regularly in his presence, in his disapproval, not because I wanted his disapproval, or because I was trying to be arrogant about the decision that had been made. It was just that it was a critical spiritual moment. Where are those places where you are hooked? Where a person's voice, their authority, they're clamoring for you, their opposition to you, their, their willingness to, to be alongside you as a friend or as a spouse or as a child, a neighbor, a colleague. What do we do? about that kind of sorting of power. Do you know what the peninsula most needs? Is for you to be a community deeply rooted in Jesus Christ and unhooked from the mesmerizing rhythms that can define the peninsula. 
I was describing to two people that live in different regions where enormous amounts of technology industry is developing in these particular sectors, which, which has been emerging but is exploding at this stage. And I said, you know, I've watched that whole scenario happen in the Bay Area, and this is the way that it tends to go. And it would be unlikely to me to think that all of this technology for all of its wealth and possibilities and inventiveness and creativity will also put a stamp on your region that literally doesn't even exist right now. And it will become the air that you all breathe. And it will be the primary narrative. Like now the primary narrative in the Bay Area is technology. That's not true in LA. It's not true in Dallas. It's not true in New York. It's not true in Chicago. It's absolutely true of the whole Bay Area. That is a mesmerizing rhythm. It's a wonderful, positive, constructive rhythm, and it is a dangerous rhythm if it means more than it should. And the question is, how do people living in this region and all of your surrounding campuses, not just here in Menlo Park, but all of the campuses of Menlo, how do you live as an unhooked people? In that context, you can be in your enemy's presence and free. Not just free to be there, but free actually to love them in being there. Seek the welfare of your enemies, for it is in their welfare that you will find your welfare. Friends, this is such an important moment in American life. It's such an important moment in the global church. It's such an important moment for us to remember and practice our identity, for us to discern what it means to hold on to genuinely credible faith and life. How do we live a believable, credible life of integrity, of faith? And then how do we actually live an unhooked life? A life that is not controlled by the mesmerizing rhythms, the dominant forces, the voices and threats and rage and fear, which is one of the most mesmerizing rhythms in America. This, the dominance of, of the mesmerizing rhythm of fear just triggers in a moment so many predictable responses which then control us, even though, in fact, we know the God who holds all power. Jesus Christ is the one who comes to set us free. We're ultimately unhooked by his love and mercy and forgiveness. We're unhooked by a God who knows us through and through. We're unhooked from the things that are not meant to be primary in order to actually let the primary things be the primary things. And those primary things have to do with what it means to live a life of deep integrity, thoughtfulness, energy, creativity, to bring goodness and mercy, inventiveness, development, curiosity to the, to the table of all the conversations that we're in, but unhooked by the mesmerizing rhythms of a culture that dominates, that controls, that stokes fear every day. We are meant to be the peculiar people, not just odd, but peculiar because we are unhooked from the rhythm of so much else that's happening around us. Friends, you have been given a new pastor. A new season is opening at Menlo. It's an opportunity for you together with him and with the staff and with all of you together as a community and all of the campus sites to ask yourselves the questions, how do we live as faithful exiles? And it turns out that is a story of joy and hope and transformation. It's a story of challenge and difference and difficulty. It's a place of being disoriented and therefore dependent. It's a place of being overwhelmed and therefore needing to find the freedom that only Jesus Christ can provide. That is your vocation. And that is exactly the joy that is before you. 
May God's blessing fall deeply, transformatively in the Menlo community so that you will be unhooked people displaying the reality of the love and mercy and justice of God that is not conditional, that is not based on social cues, that's based on political orientation, based on style, based on personality, but a freedom that holds all things and all things together in the creative power, the transformative power of a God who meets exiles so that in those unexpected places where the challenges may be the greatest and the disorientation may feel the fiercest, in that context, may you learn what it means to lay hold of who you are in Christ and how you display credible faith and how you live an unhooked life. Lord, by your grace, these are things that are not just meant to be words. These are realities that your word points us towards. This is the stuff that actually enables us to live a life of faithfulness toward you. It's going to be your faithfulness that's going to write the greater story. You do eventually deliver Israel from exile, but they are to be unusual people, now free to belong to you, whether in the promised land or in exile. May we know who we are and live it to the glory of your great name.